0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 17, and we'll be looking at uh, verses 5 through 10. <clears throat> uh, we are still in the um, second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, and he's now at the city of Thessalonica, and uh, we started into his ministry there last week, and I'd like to begin reading in verse 1 again and read down through verse 10. And we'll be focusing our attention this morning primarily on verses 5 through 10. So please uh, listen with uh, faith. And uh, as you hear the Word of God read this morning. Acts chapter 17 starting in verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and of Polyneia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And again, Christ is a word for the Anointed One. It's a Greek word for the Messiah, the Old Testament. So this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is your Messiah, in effect, speaking to the Jews. And some of them were persuaded and joined, Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, that is, they didn't find Paul and Silas there, They began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And I'll stop there. And may God bless the reading of his word. Well, Satan hates God and he hates those who worship God. And ever since sin was found in Lucifer, he has plotted and schemed to dethrone God and sit on the throne himself and make himself like the Most High God. This, of course, is a fool's errand, doomed to fail miserably. But such is the insanity of sin that even though Satan has been judged and cast out of heaven... He continues his madness on earth, constantly aiming his hostility and his wrath against God and against his church. Satan's attacks usually take three forms. There are many others. The one is he's constantly trying to undermine the Scriptures to cast doubt or outright deny the truthfulness of the Word of God. He hates Scripture. Secondly, he seeks to tempt us to sin and to entangle us in it if he can. And thirdly, to stir up opposition and persecution against the church. And we're actually going to see some of this in our passage uh, that we have read this morning. I want to begin by, by looking at Satan's attack on the Scripture. And I want you to look at the passage that we've just read and look specifically at verse 6. And verse eight, and this is more of a relatively a modern day attack on the scriptures. If you notice, in verse six and in verse eight, there's a reference to what's referred to as city authorities. Now, your translation may have city rulers or something different, but that particular uh, Greek word is the word politarchs in Greek. And one of Satan's attacks on the Word of God, which we see in this passage, and this is in more modern times, is on this particular word that Luke chose to describe the city rulers at Thessalonica. Now this is, uh, before I go any further into this, uh, Satan has always had as one of his chief aims is to undermine and attack the inspiration, the authority of God's Word. Uh, Actually, this is the very first thing we learned about Satan in Genesis chapter 3, when he appeared as a serpent to Eve. And notice he challenges Eve's understanding of God's Word. And the first words that come out of his mouth is an attempt to distort God's Word. He says to Eve, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Of course, that's not what God said. But he he immediately tries to distort God's Word. And then secondly, he outright denied it when he said to Eve, surely you will not die. In direct contradiction to what God said clearly, that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then they would surely die in that day. And he outright denies it. So Satan has continued this attack on the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. He's always about trying to drive a wedge between mankind and the authority and inspiration of the Word of God. So we come up to this word polytarchs in Acts chapter 17. And uh, the uh, scholars of the New Testament could not find this particular Greek word anywhere else in the Greek language. Not in Classical Greek, not in Koine Greek. There was no other use of this particular word found anywhere other than right here in Acts chapter 17. So the, the so-called biblical New Testament scholars claim that Luke just was mistaken. That he was in error And I think, again, Satan loves to dwell in the heads of scholars to attack the inspiration of Scripture. And that's exactly what they did. You know, Luke is an unreliable historian. He uses words that are inappropriate that he makes up or he misapplies or he just makes a mistake because they couldn't find this word found anywhere else. So obviously, Luke must be wrong in using this particular word to describe the city ruler's in Thessalonica. Well, the vindication of Luke's accuracy came uh, not too long after these uh, New Testament scholars began to attack, no doubt motivated by Satan, probably, to attack the inspiration of Scripture because after that, archaeology began to discover a number of inscriptions, ancient uh, inscriptions from the 1st century into the middle of the 2nd century that had this particular word in it. And in fact, they found 72 inscriptions that had this particular word, polytarch, in it. And guess how many of them they found in the ruins of ancient Thessalonica? 28 of the 72 inscriptions with this word on it they found. And one of them is this one in the upper left that they took off of one of the major gates leading into the city of Thessalonica. And this particular inscription uh, listed six of these politarchs, listed out their names, who are currently in office at that particular time. And I think it's kind of a fascinating thing to realize that whenever these scholars come and attack the Word of God, that's always what Satan wants to do. But obviously, archaeology has proven them uh, to be absolutely wrong. That inscription, which would be hard to read from what you could see, as it is transliterated here on this particular panel Uh, You can see the very first word, you'd have to know Greek, but that's our word. It's the polytarch word. And so you can can see that uh, Satan's attempt to undermine the authority of Scripture, to discredit it, obviously has fallen woefully short. Uh, And I want to speak to a lot of the young people in the church this morning. Because inevitably you will run into people that will discount the inspiration of Scripture. They will tell you the Bible is full of fables. It's made made up stories. It's got errors in it. It's got mistakes in it. And the point you need to understand is never believe a liberal's attack on the inspiration of the Word of God. The Lord loves to embarrass them and they end up with egg on their faces or maybe an omelet, like a, a thousand egg omelet on their face whenever they in their own foolish hearts begin to attack the Word of God and undermine it And they are the ones who are deceived. Don't believe the attacks on God's Word. The Scriptures are inspired by God and inerrant. And you can trust every word is being spoken. God breathed. And it is for our blessing that God has given us such a reliable Word to guide our lives. This is truth. So Satan has... uh, wanted to undermine the authority of Scripture. And this particular passage uh, is one example where they tried to do that, but the the archaeology has uh, again shown them to be uh, absolutely deceived. Secondly, we can look at Satan's attack on the saints. He attacks the Scriptures. He attacks the saints. So we read in verse 5, And by the way, even though Satan is not mentioned in this passage, uh, I'll explain later why I think this is the case. In verse 5 we read that uh, after Paul preached in the synagogue for three Sabbaths, reasoning, explaining, giving evidence that Christ had to suffer on the cross, suffer for our sins, he had to rise from the dead saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ, Then in verse 5, but the Jews becoming jealous. And they were jealous because in verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. And the Jews who could not logically reconcile in their minds the idea of a Messiah that would suffer and die, that was not their concept of the Messiah, They only saw the Messiah as a conquering king, a mighty warrior. They didn't understand the scriptures. They became jealous. Became jealous because some of their own Jewish friends were believing this message. And not only that, a number of the leading God-fearing Greeks and leading women were also believing in Paul's message. And obviously, they, they took that as a great offense. Uh, This particular word for jealous is found in the Septuagint Old Testament of Joseph's brothers who became jealous of Joseph and sold him into slavery. It involves not only a negative feeling, but motivation to attack, motivation to hurt, to harm, to do something bad to. And that's what they're going to do. Some of these Jews, these Greeks were coming to faith in Jesus Christ through the Gospel. And the authority of the other Jews, maybe the the leaders of the synagogue, their authority was therefore being challenged and undermined. They were no doubt trying to uh, give a rebuttal to Paul's Gospel, but Paul kept reasoning and explaining and giving evidence, so he was persuading them. And these, Jew, these synagogue leaders again, they were losing their people. They were losing their authority. And again, they took it personal. So what would they do? In verse 5, the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. So now they go out. These Jews, uh, unbelieving, went down to the marketplace, the forum in Thessalonica. And the forum is where people met. Lots of people met. But there's a lot of uh, unemployment in the Roman Empire. And this sadly, apparently, was where some lazy, unemployed people that were there, hoodlums, thugs. And the Jews went down there and got these Greeks, these wicked men as they are described here, Wicked meaning morally or socially worthless. These depraved men. They recruited these wicked men to go back and attack Paul and Silas and and the believers. They may have even paid them a price. This could be an example of kind of a -a rent-a-mob. Kind of like Antifa that you find on the news. That's kind of what's going on there. They go recruit these people. And uh, they form a mob. And then they start throwing their chairs into glass windows and things like that. That's what these Jewish leaders have done. They have rejected Christ. They've rejected the Gospel. So now they go to the marketplace and they search out these wicked people of all kinds. And they recruit them, pay them, whatever they did. And they set the city in an uproar. They began walking down, mob down the streets, yelling about what Paul and Silas have done. You know, our city's being turned upside down. Now, again, when they go to the marketplace, uh, must have been a lot of these kinds of men, these wicked men, just standing around idle. And again, idle hands are the devil's what workshop. So that's exactly what's going to happen here. You know, it's interesting. Apparently, Thessalonica had a reputation for a large number of these kinds of people. And some of them got saved. And sanctification takes a while, you know. I mean, it's not immediate sanctification when we come to faith in Christ. So when Paul writes his letters back to the church of Thessalonica, apparently some of them are still kind of living a lazy, idle life. And he rebukes them for that. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 11, he exhorts them to work with their own hands so that they won't be in any need. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 10, he says, if anyone is not willing to work, then neither let him eat. So apparently some of this characteristic of the Thessalonians had made its way into the church and needed to be dealt with. If government wants to support the lazy, that's one thing, but not in the church. So what do they do in verse 5? Well, they form this mob. They set the city in an uproar. You could just hear this loud, noisy mob going down the streets, yelling, shouting of all these "These evil people have come into our city and they're disrupting our way of life. Referring to Paul and Silas primarily. And so in verse 5, They go to Jason's house and they start attacking the house of Jason. So maybe they're throwing their chairs in the glass windows there too. I don't know. But they are seeking to bring them out to the people. Now apparently Paul and Silas, when they came to Thessalonica, uh, found lodging with Jason. So that's why they're going to Jason's house because that's, That's where they are anticipating that they will find Paul and Silas. So they go to Jason's house. They begin to attack it. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. But verse 6, when they did not find them, they didn't find Paul and Silas there, they began dragging Jason and some brethren, these would probably be believers, before the city authorities shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. Now I want you to notice how their intent was to find Paul and Silas and drag them out before the city authorities. And you can see how false religion can use the state to persecute the church. You saw it in the trial of Jesus where Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin solicited the Roman government, Pontius Pilate, to actually do the dirty work of crucifying the Lord. You see it many times in Acts where the, the unbelieving Jews will go to the Gentiles and stir up the city to come and bring persecution against the apostles. And that's going on here as well. Now look at the accusation. Verse 6. First, it's these men who have upset the world have come here also. They've upset the world. bit of an exaggeration. Using the word world in a very obviously confined to parts of the Roman Empire. They've heard things. They heard what happened in Philippi, no doubt. So they're understanding this. And so they're raising this big accusation That they have basically upset the world or the King James Version has turned the world upside down. You know, the irony is that sin is what has turned the world upside down. It's the gospel that will turn it right side up. But of course, that's not in their thinking at this point in time. So by upsetting the world, they're accusing Paul and Silas as being traveling troublemakers. They want to overturn the Roman Empire, change all their customs, bring about social upheaval. That's the first accusation. And then in verse 7, since they couldn't find Paul and Silas, who are the main teachers and preachers in the synagogue, they say in verse 7, and Jason has welcomed them. So now it's guilt by association. Guilt. Is on Jason. Because Jason has housed them. Jason has befriended them. So they're blaming Jason as well. And then they say in verse 7. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Saying that there is another king. Jesus. Now, Now it gets serious. It gets very serious. Because if they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Then they are accused of breaking Caesar's laws. Which would make them guilty of insurrection and treason. They're rebels against Rome. And as they add to that, they not only act, they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, but they also say that there's another king, Jesus. So apparently, Paul and Silas were preaching that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Not a king in the future, he's a king now. He's on His throne in heaven now. Now this charge would have been incredibly serious, potentially deadly. It would have threatened and jeopardized the status of Thessalonia as a free city if this ever got out. That they were allowing this to be preached in their city. Remember Thessalonica was a free city which gave them extra privileges in the Roman Empire because obviously one of the mottos throughout the Roman Empire is that Caesar is Lord, Caesar is King. And add to that, there's a great deal of emperor worship in this society. Uh, The living emperors, Claudius is the one who's on the throne right now, the uh, living emperors were all considered to be divine. That's why they were also called the sons of God. They were called Lord and, and saviors who brought peace to the empire. And they were worshipped in every city throughout the Roman empire. The emperor's word. There were temples and shrines and statues made of the emperors. They would hold festivals and offer sacrifices to the emperors. They would hold gladiatorial games. Chariot races and even the public baths would have shrines and things exalting and elevating uh, the emperor to a godlike position. Thousands of inscriptions throughout the Roman Empire show that this emperor worship, that ideology and theology was kind of the glue that held the cities of the Roman Empire together. Thousands of statues of this of the Caesars, can be found uh, throughout the Roman Empire. So that religion and gods and the worship of the emperor were all aspects of public life. Now with all of that going on, you can understand why they would be so concerned that Paul and Silas were saying there's another king. And it's Jesus. Because now King Jesus would be in direct competition with Caesar and they were proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior Jesus Christ is God and the Son of God who is crucified and raised from the dead the true King of Kings before whom one day every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord To the glory of God the Father. But Caesar is Lord throughout the Roman Empire. This is a a collision that is colossal in its magnitude. So they would have viewed Paul and Silas as revolutionaries. A direct threat and challenge to Caesar's authority. Which was a no-no in the Roman Empire. So this particular accusation. That they say there is another King Jesus obviously was, uh, was very threatening uh, in their mind. So the response of the city authorities in verse 8 and 9, they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. So they had brought Jason and the brethren before the city authorities. And in verse 9, And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So the city rulers were stirred up. They feel the heat. If if they allow this type of preaching to go on within their city that promotes a different king, another king, Jesus, then Rome would come down heavy upon them and uh, they would probably not only lose their, their privileges, but the leaders might even be executed. And of course, the main culprit, Paul was not to be found. So what do they do with Jason? Jason and the brethren. Well, in verse 9, they extract, they receive a pledge from them. Now, we don't know exactly what this pledge or this bond might refer to. Of course, it makes us think of posting bail when you get arrested. You know, you pay money and so you can get out of jail and at least go home until the trial. But here the pledge, no doubt, uh, involved probably a threat that if Jason, who was housing Paul and Silas and the others, if he did not deal with this immediately, then there would be terrible and severe consequences upon him and the brethren. And this is probably the reason why in verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. They had to get them out of town immediately at night time. So this, this pledge that was received from Jason and the and the others must have been something like if you don't get these guys out of town then we're going to come and we're going to you know we're going to punish you severely something to that effect but whatever it was it 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 implied that Paul and Silas are now going to be banned from Thessalonica they're to be run off and not return because immediately they leave town. And they did it because obviously they didn't want to bring a harm or death or, or a persecution to the brethren on their behalf. If they want to stand up and preach and bring it on them, that's one thing. But Paul didn't want to be responsible for them suffering for him. So they immediately leave town. So they're probably being banned um, Now, all of this, I think, uh, suggests the role of of Satan, as I said at the outset. And we can kind of read between the lines to see how Satan is is involved in this. First off, I want to point out uh, the role of Satan in the synagogue. Uh, John tells us in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, and in chapter 3, verse 9, that there is something called a synagogue of Satan. In Revelation 2, it's dealing with Christ's letter to the church at Smyrna. And then in Revelation 3.9, it's Christ's letter to the church at Philadelphia. And in both of those cities, the synagogue was so influenced by Satan that it was actually called a synagogue of Satan. Now they claim they are Jews, but John says they are not Jews. Now they are Jews outwardly, but in the new covenant that doesn't make you a true Jew. A true Jew is someone who's been circumcised of heart, doesn't matter about the flesh. But these Jews were claiming to be Jews, but they weren't true Jews. They were Jews maybe in the old covenant sense, but certainly not in the new covenant sense. So he actually says in Revelation 2.9, speaking to the church at Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And then in Revelation 3.9, to the church at Philadelphia, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews, but are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you, the church. So here we see that uh, Satan can invade a synagogue and stir them up to oppose and persecute Christ's true Israel, that is, believers in Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. And I think what we see in Thessalonica The fact that these Jews who did not believe went to the marketplace of all places. I mean, just imagine the mindset. There is such animosity and such hatred against Paul that they went to the marketplace and they went around to find all of the criminal-minded type people, the hoodlums, the wicked people, and stirred them up into a mob to walk down the street and destructively try to do something very bad to Paul if they could find him. That is, that is satanic. That is, that is another synagogue of Satan where their opposition is so intense that they actually go out and stir up Gentiles to come in and attack Jason's house. Throwing rocks at the door, whatever it may be. So this is, uh, this is very, very sad. It's, a, it's interesting that religion oftentimes becomes the handmaiden of Satan. Satan loves to enter into religious assemblies and turn them violent. I mean, radical Islam, is that not an example of it or, or what? Uh, here, John describes a synagogue of Satan There are a lot of mosques of Satan as well. And any other religion that stirs up violence against the gospel or against the church is really being inflamed by Satan. Satan loves to hijack religion and use it to persecute the church. Uh, In India, the the Hindus are becoming much more religious and... and, uh, And aggressive in their opposition to Christianity. Not the parts where we will be going. Thank the Lord. But uh, Hinduism. uh, The Roman Catholic Church throughout its history. Has been another kind of a synagogue of Satan if you will. So you can see how Satan loves to use religion. To turn it against the one and only true religion. Found in Jesus Christ. And that's what's really taking place I think at Thessalonica. And it should make us. Uh, aware of some of the tactics of Satan himself. But also Satan can inhabit the holes of government. And this is what's interesting. And this is why I think we can see Satan at work in Thessalonica and particularly among the city authorities and the Jewish leaders as well. But when Paul eventually will leave Thessalonica, he'll go to Berea, Then he'll go down to Athens. And then he'll go over to Corinth. And from Corinth, he will write his first and second letters to the Thessalonians. And notice what he wrote in his first letter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 18. He said, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. And yet Satan hindered us. Now what does that mean? That Satan hindered us. Well, many of the commentators believe that it was due to this ban. This ban that the the city rulers placed upon Jason that basically said, you need to get Paul out of town or you're going to pay a severe penalty. And it was that ban that was still in force when Paul was at Corinth. It was a ban that the city authorities had placed upon him that that basically said he had to immediately leave town and could not come back. And many commentators think that when Paul wrote that Satan has hindered us from coming back to see you more than once, that it was because of Satan actually Involved in the synagogue and involved in the city authorities to to ban him from coming back. And until those guys were replaced, then that ban was still in place. So this may probably very well be uh, what Paul is referring to. The Jewish leaders stirred up the city rulers who saw the threat. And banned Paul from ministering in Thessalonica. But Paul knew who was really behind it all. It was Satan. And that's why he could later write to the Ephesians. That our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But against the rulers. Against the powers. Against the, word for, the world forces of this darkness. Against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. These are the guys... These demons are our real enemies. Our struggle is not primarily against men. It is, you know, certainly on a certain level. But it is these satanic forces that are stirring up this opposition and this hatred to bring the persecution against us. So he saw clearly the hand of Satan behind government persecuting the church and persecuting himself uh, personally. Now, if that is the correct view, then Paul, by this particular reference in First Thessalonians two eighteen, is indicating how Satan can work within governments to afflict persecution on the church, and you really see Satan's uh, role in influencing government throughout the Scriptures. And I think this gives us a bit of discernment as we look at the world affairs today, as we look at events that are going on, that Satan is very much involved. Now, people make two errors when it comes to Satan and demonic influences and forces. Some of them are just totally oblivious to it as if Satan and demons don't exist at all. That's one extreme. The other extreme is you see Satan everywhere. I mean, it's just like behind every door. In fact, years, many years ago, I used to go down to the city rescue mission and I would, uh, preach to the, uh, to the street people and, uh, drunks, all who were wanting to come in and get a meal and a place to sleep that night. And there would normally be about a hundred of them. And I would preach to them and I would also lead, uh, a, a Bible study for, uh, about five or six of the men that were serious about trying to get their life straightened out. And I remember I went down there one time and I was uh, preparing for the uh, chapel service with all the people, all the guys would, would come. And there was a man who came into the room and he, and he went to every chair. There's about a hundred of them. And, and he said something like, Begone, Satan, begone, Satan. And every chair, he said, Begone, Satan, begone. Because I think he thought that Satan could be under every one of those chairs. And that's a bit of an excessive view of satanic involvement. But the reality is, is that Satan is real, demons are real, and that they have a very dangerous influence in our world. And we are encouraged and exhorted in Scripture to be on guard against them, not to take them lightly. And so Satan's involvement uh, throughout the Scriptures can also involve local governments, national governments as well. For example, in 1 Kings 22, when King Ahab was about to attack Ramoth Gilead, he was seeking wisdom and guidance from God whether he should do that or not. And uh, God has a conversation with the angelic realm and ultimately sends an evil lying spirit to go into King Ahab and convince him to go fight at Ramoth Gilead where eventually he'll be shot and he will die. But it was a demon that influenced the king to go to war. We see in Revelation chapter 17 also, for example, that the, the beast upon whom the woman sits will have seven heads and ten horns. And those represent kings and kingdoms. So there is a a controlling influence in these kingdoms that Satan will have in that particular day. Daniel. Very interesting passage in Daniel. Uh, Daniel is mourning over the circumstances of Israel. And, And an angel comes to give him a vision of what will take place in the future. And as Daniel chapter 10 recounts the words of this angel talking with Daniel, the angel tells Daniel that the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. So who is this prince of the kingdom of Persia? Well, we know Michael, a chief prince is an angel and this prince of the kingdom of persia is probably a demon most commentators now some of the older commentators think that it was a man but it doesn't fit a man this is probably a prince within satan's military ranks and orders there are orders within his his army of demons And one of the princes, but notice he's described as the prince of the kingdom of Persia, meaning that this particular demon was assigned specifically to the nation of Persia. And under him would be no telling how many multitudes of other demons carrying out demonic activity, influencing the minds and thoughts of the rulers and the people within the nation. In verse 20 later on, It says, and then he said, do you understand, the angel is speaking to Daniel, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia, so I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. So this angel is going to go back and fight against the demon in Persia who's assigned to oversee their influences in Persia. And it gives us kind of a, a window into the satanic warfare that's going on that we cannot see. We cannot even envision it. But it's a reality, and it's happening. The point being that demons and Satan, one of their primary targets is to control world leaders and to govern them and direct them in satanic, destructive ways. And here we find that... Uh, This particular prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding the angel that came to Daniel. By the way, you know what ancient Persian is today? Persia is today? Iran, yeah. And I think that demon has never left. If you look at what's going on in Iran, I mean you just you can see that uh, the, the religious leaders over there are certainly influenced by Satan because of their hate for Israel, their hate for America. Uh, Satan is very much entrenched in Iran and many of the other countries over there. So one of the things I think we should understand by way of conclusion from this, just seeing what Paul went through, seeing that Satan was hindering him by virtue of this ban that the city authorities placed on him, so he couldn't go back to Thessalonica and minister to the church. And part of what we need to learn from this is that Satan loves to inhabit and dwell in the holes of power, the holes of government. So, what should be our response to that? We need to pray. We need to pray for our country. We need to pray for the other countries, particularly where there's opposition and friction with our country. We need to pray for God's mercy and grace because Satan is very much involved to stir up war, to stir up animosity and hatred, conflict, and we need to pray for that. There are powerful demonic forces of evil at work in and through the nations. And their rulers to defeat and overthrow the people of God as well. We need to pray for our leaders in Washington. Our state leaders. Our city leaders. That God would not allow them. That God would prevent them from being influenced by satanic forces. To persecute the church in America and around the world as well. We need to pray for our leaders. And we need to pray for the nations where they persecute Christians. And thank God, God will hear our our prayers and answer them as He sees best. But God does hear. And we have the encouragement that that the heart of the King is like streams of water in the hands of the Lord. And He can turn it whichever way He wants to. And even though Satan is a very powerful foe, ultimately He's subject to the sovereign will and rule of God on His throne. Satan cannot do anything on his own but God often gives him permission to do great evil things but we can pray and God will hear our prayers and we trust will bring blessings to our nation and the other nations that the that the gospel of Christ might continue to expand Hezekiah prayed to God when Sennacherib the Assyrian king invaded Judah And here his own country was invaded by the Assyrians. And Hezekiah prayed to God and God sent an angel, one angel. It may have been the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. But he destroyed 185 Assyrians in the middle of the night. God heard Hezekiah's prayer for his country and delivered them from a great judgment that they certainly deserved. Later on in the days of Nehemiah, he was praying for the survivors in Judah after the Babylonian captivity and they were suffering there and after the the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem. And and Nehemiah was in Babylon and his heart was moved and he was praying to God. And by that time, the Persians were now in, in, uh, in power. And God moved the heart of the Persian king Artaxerxes to send Nehemiah, who was his cupbearer, back to Jerusalem to help rebuild the wall. God hears our prayers. And He can bring blessings to a nation. And He can can stop Satan's influence. And we need to be mindful of that. God can move the hearts of leaders for the good of His church when we pray. So don't forget to pray. Pray. We see that example throughout the Scriptures. We need to pray for our leaders. And secondly, not only can Satan dwell in government and in the leaders of nations, he can also attack the church. And he can attack us individually. So that we need to be on guard. Satan, his demons are watching. And on a personal level, uh, Satan wants to attack you and deceive you and to tempt you into sin. It's interesting after um, in Revelation chapter 12, after God protected the woman who was fleeing from the dragon, and the dragon was not able to capture and consume the woman, the text in Revelation 12 verse 17 that the dragon was enraged because he couldn't destroy Israel, maybe the remnant of Israel, of the Jews. He was enraged with the woman and he went off to make war with the rest of her children. And who are the children of the women Of the woman who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He was enraged and went off to make war against Christians. That's what he's doing today. And if he ever catches you off guard, or if he ever catches you unarmed, he will mess with you terribly. And we are exhorted in Scripture to be mindful, to walk circumspectly in our lives. Peter tells us be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's always looking. He's always watching. And if you ever get close to sin, when he sees it, he'll do everything he can to stir you up to grab it and lay hold of it. He wants to destroy you. He wants to devour you. We're to be on the alert. Don't think that, well, you know, I'm such an insignificant, worthless Christian. Satan will never bother me. No, he will. And I think uh, Peter is very wise in exhorting us to not take your safety for granted. Now, Christ is going to ultimately protect us and get us safely to heaven. But sometimes we may be drugged through the fire on our way there. Satan is described as the God of this world. He has tremendous power and influence, all under the sovereignty of God. He can only do what God, again, permits him to do, but he has great power and is viewed by Scripture as very dangerous for us. He destroyed all of Job's wealth and health. He controls the winds and the storms when God allows him to. He can inflict ulcers and bodily diseases and distemper and anguish and despair and sorrow and sadness in our lives. He can bring depression deep into our life. He can tempt us to destructive sins He can even control animals like the swine and lead them off to to commit suicide by going over the banks and drowning in the water. That was Satan. He just loves to destroy and kill things if he can get his hands on them. He can inject his thoughts into our minds. And he sifted Peter like wheat to make him deny the Lord three times. He's so crafty and subtle that he can disguise himself as an angel of light. And he is an enemy who never sleeps. He's an enemy who never rests, but is constantly on the prowl looking for someone to devour. John Calvin describes demons this way. He says, We have been forewarned that an enemy relentlessly threatens us. An enemy who is the very embodiment of rash boldness, of military prowess, of crafty wiles, of untiring zeal and haste, of every conceivable weapon and of skill in the science of warfare. We must then, Calvin says, bend our every effort to this goal let us not be overwhelmed by carelessness or faint-heartedness, but with courage rekindled, let us stand our ground in combat. And so Paul exhorts us to put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. To put on that full armor of God being aware that Satan may attack you, can attack you from any angle at any time. We're to walk circumspectly, looking all around, being sensitive to the spiritual warfare that we're in. In India, there are tigers that sometimes become man-eaters. Not in the areas that we're going. Again, thank the Lord. But they would ambush the Indians walking through the forest or walking through the jungle. And right after the Indian would walk by them, they would ambush them from behind. That was one of the tactics they were using. Finally, the village people began to realize this, so they began to put on a mask. A, a mask of a human face with eyes and nose and a mouth. And they would turn it around so it's on the back side of their head. And as they walked through the jungles and the tiger would see them go past them, they're still. it appears that they're, the human's looking at them. And, and the number of attacks decreased. Because it seemed like they had eyes in front and eyes in the back. And they couldn't ambush them that way. And I think there's a lesson that we need to walk circumspectly. I like that verse in Ephesians from the King James Version. For we're exhorted to walk circumspectly, just keep your eyes around of the spiritual danger around you. Be on guard. Because if we do not put our full armor on, then we're at risk to Satan's arrows. William Gernal, who wrote a classic commentary on Ephesians 6, the great passage of the armor of God, said, Satan is an expert archer that can shoot at the smallest opening. He can shoot his fireballs of lust into the eye if that is all that is open to his attack. And with such a little opening, he can set the whole body aflame. Eve but looked at the tree, and a poisonous dart struck her deep in her heart. Satan is constantly attacking the scriptures, he is constantly attacking the saints. And he can use government to do his bidding. He can possess the heads of state to bring persecution against the church. And he ever seeks to ruin the saints or destroy the saints so that he might discredit and halt the progress of the gospel because that's how much he hates Christ and hates the gospel. So we must pray for our nation, our leaders, Pray that God would prevent Satan's influence from growing. Turn their hearts back to Him in true revival and repentance. We must be aware of His tactics and not think that we're too insignificant for Him, for His arrows to be aimed at us. And we need to stand firm against the wiles of the devil. Satan prevented Paul from going back to minister to the church. Satan would love to prevent you and short-circuit your ministry, short-circuit your walk with Christ because He hates us. He's a real enemy. He's a real threat. But thank God we have Christ who has defeated Satan, who has promised that we will prevail and triumph ultimately over Satan. But still we need to engage in that daily battle because the battle is real. Satan is real. And we need to be on guard. And so Paul teaches us something about how Satan can influence religion and Satan can influence government. Let us be on guard and stand firm wearing the armor of God each and every day. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank You, Lord, for the Apostle Paul, the insight that he saw that even though it was the the Jewish leaders and the, and the city authorities that had moved against him and even banned him from returning to the city, that he saw that this opposition really was being stirred up and motivated by Satan himself. And because we don't see Satan at work physically or visibly, we oftentimes uh, undermine his influence But Lord, we just pray that You would give us a greater sensitivity to the danger, to the battle that we're in. And we can rejoice that Christ is our rock, that Christ is our shelter, He's our ultimate victory. But Lord, on a day-to-day basis, we're in this intense battle. And Satan is so subtle that we need Your grace to help us to put on the armor of God each and every day so that we can stand firm against our great enemy. So, Father, give us that grace. Help us to go to the Word of God regularly, to put on that armor daily, so that we can walk triumphantly and not be seduced by the schemes of Satan. For we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen.